This is Let's Keep It Real with Sandy Joy Weston, your weekly dose of positivity with awesome stories and guests from all over the world. It's an opportunity to learn some great new things and expand your mind. We'll tackle topics from all areas of life, and as always with Sandy, the sky's the limit. Well, my let's keep it real, people. I feel it's been forever since we chatted. I did take a little summer break. You understand. I hope you did too, but don't worry. We're back with an awesome, amazing guest. But before I bring in Mike Kading, I want to tell you a little bit about him. Mike Kading is the husband to Alyssa and the father to Claire and Emma and CEO of Norhart, a $200 million residential real estate company that designs, builds, and rents apartments. Norhart's purpose, I love this, is to solve America's housing affordability crisis by reducing the cost of construction. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited about this topic. And just so you know, I've been podcasting for over 15 years. We never had this on ever mm. anything about this. So this is going to be awesome sauce. All right. But before we get into it, Mike, I ask every guest, give me one word to best describe your past 30 days, good, bad, or ugly. Pick one word. And then why'd you pick it? Intense. Uh, yeah. And the reason is, uh, with business, things go up and down and things are always changing. We're seeing rising interest rates have had an interesting impact on business and we've had to pivot and change. And so that all brings some intensity, but been fun. I like it. Yeah. So I sent out to my peeps before you came on, like, what are the number one questions that you have for Mike? And believe it or not, the first thing they said, ask him how he's handling the stress in the market. And by the way, we have a lot of realtors listening in because I have a lot of friends who are realtors. Mm. Yeah, it's it's intense. There, there's so much happening right now um, because interest rates are rising. That means banks are pulling back. Liquidity is getting pulled out of the market and they're giving less proceeds. And this, what this does, it makes real estate deals less um, less financially feasible. And so we've seen in our market that multifamily deals have dropped have dropped by 90% in the last year. And so there's a lot of developers and a lot of groups out there that are just kind of on their heels. Like, what do we do? How do we solve this? There's a lot of puzzle pieces kind of moving as a result. Um, we're in a good spot because our costs have always been so low, but still we're having to pivot and change. Mm -hmm. And it, it's exciting. It's fun. Wait, did you hear what he just said? It's exciting and fun. So <laughs> it sounds like to me, you are just having a mind shift in yeah. sort of like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And panicking, you're excited and fun about how we're going to solve this. Yeah. The reality is that uh, we're always hit with challenging things. And I would actually be bored if it was too mundane, too flat, too relaxed. I actually enjoy the challenges that come up and that's been our whole course of our whole business is being hit with challenge after challenge after challenge. And it's not the challenges. They're not problems in and of themselves. It's how you pivot. It's how you change. It's how you learn and adapt from that. That's the whole name of the game. Okay. So I know my people are out there because we're all about mindset here. Mm. 
How do you shift that mindset? Did you just come out of the wound? Were you that way? Or do you work on it every day to get into that more positive mindset? Yeah, I certainly feel stressed, but your your response to it is your choice. And I I learned that from a fairly young age. Um, Since it's keeping it real, my my prior uh, fiance actually broke off our marriage. And it was through that experience Mm -hmm. that... uh, really shaped me and helped me understand how how we feel is kind of a direct reflection of how we choose to think to ourselves. And so that lesson in life gave me a lot more resiliency when dealing with challenges and dealing with problems. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is just to remember um, like where you're going in life. For me, when I was, ever since I was young, I've always wanted to make a meaningful, positive impact in the world. And that's always been my dream. And my dad passed away relatively young. And that reminded me how short life really is. And so for me, yeah, we're hitting with, we're going to hit with challenges every day. But that's okay. That's part of the journey that we're on. And if we stay focused on what the long-term vision, making the impact, solving housing affordability, like you just realize this is just part of the game. This is just day-to-day life. And you become more okay with it. And you have that kind of perspective. You know, I want to dive a little bit more into, because you were very honest on one of your sites about what happened when your dad unexpectedly passed away. Yeah. How it ended up creating all these new possibilities because you're, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but naivete, we, I didn't know what I was doing. The city shut me down. And so I just created new things. I think everybody could learn about that no matter what their profession is. So let's talk about it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my parents originally started this business and it uh, was very small, grew it over time. In fact, we lost everything. My dad got kidnapped in Peru. Some crazy stories there. But eventually, <laughs> eventually we'll get back to that. Okay. Yeah. Eventually, uh, um, it grew to kind of a, a decent small business. And I went off to school and I wanted nothing to do with the family business. Oh. Yeah. And I I really wrestled with my own ego on that because deep down, I didn't want people to think it was given to me. And I get get that. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I realized though, is that like long-term I wanted to make this impact. And so if I really want to make that impact, why not take this small opportunity and grow it to the point that can have that level of impact. So I worked with my dad for a couple of years and then um, my dad one day is like unexpectedly passed away. I remember him coming into the office to, or we had a call from our bank saying that, hey, these checks are bouncing to your employees. Like this has literally never happened in my entire career. Why are our employees getting paid? Well, it turned out my dad had moved money into the wrong account at one of our banks. So we had him come in to uh, address that and fix it, but I had him sit down to write this check and he couldn't even write the check. Like he was having a stroke. We didn't know it at the time. I got you. And um, yeah, so uh, we went home with them that night. I made sure everything was okay. The next morning, my my mom called frantically and said, "This something is not right. And so I went over there and um, within hours, he just wasn't with us anymore. Oh, wow. But what was interesting there, so you have these big challenges in life. It's how you look at them that really matter. Mindset, as you talk about. And so I lost my dad. But there was sort of an opportunity. There's a positive spin to this and that 
I didn't know much, right? I didn't know how this industry was supposed to work. And so we could start questioning everything. And it's in that questioning, in that willingness to change things that enabled us to start doing things that other people weren't doing in our industry. And so here we were able to take this really terrible moment and shift it to actually accelerate and leverage things that we couldn't have otherwise done before. That's the best. I mean, to me, I want every, I want to plaster that everywhere Mm. that you didn't know what to do. You didn't know you were doing it the wrong way. And it's, I think about people saying, this is the way we've done it. We've done it that way for so many years and they can't break out of the mold. Well, you didn't have that. You didn't know. I don't know. And because of that, look at, oh my God, that's unbelievable. Now yeah, it drives me nuts when people think that way. And I think there's so much fear in trying something new, but what, I, what I've learned is that as we get older, we are f- fearful of starting something new because we're afraid of how people might perceive us that we're not that good at it. And the truth is whenever we start something new, we're terrible, but as kids we're born, we can't walk. We can't talk. I have a five-year-old daughter. She is brave at everything because she has no idea about this notion of being good at something. So why do we lose that bravery as we get older? I think again, it's that fear of what people might think. But another key thing that I've learned is to get really comfortable being uncomfortable in that state of failure. Because it's in that failure, in those early stages, in those early days, where you're really going to learn. One of my favorite studies, they took a group of individuals and split them into two different groups. One group, they were both going to make clay pots. One group was going to make the best clay pot that they possibly could. The second group was to make as many clay pots as they could. Well, as you might expect, the first group, their first pot, was better than the second group's first pot. But here's the magic. Over time, that second group was way better than the first group. And that's the lesson to take out of it, is just to be okay with that failure initially and knowing that you're going to grow and improve over time. That's how you master something new. All right. That's it. Podcast over. That's it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm hanging on it because it's so true. And I do think... We get set in our ways as we get older. And I talk to so many people that say, but I've been this successful and they are afraid of failing because what if it's not as good as the, you know, the last time and how uh-huh. much they've accomplished it. So it gets harder and harder because they have so much accomplishment. I'm thinking, no, rest on your laurels. What is it? I'm trying again, you know? So- but there ha- was there a time though? Because you talked about you were you so didn't know what you're doing. The city shut you down. Was there a time you were freaking out? Like, come on, Dad, you got to guide me. What the heck? I'm going to run the business into the ground. Did oh you yeah, that moment. I, oh, I really wrestled with that. I wrestled with, am I good enough? Right. So after yeah. my dad passed away, we're building a new building. It was called Emberwood, and it was the first big project that I did all on my own. I mean, with our staff, but leading it without my dad. And uh, we really were struggling. In fact, so much so that the city came in and shut us down, not just once, but twice. And the second time they said, Mike, you're not good enough. You need to find a different manager to manage you, basically. Yeah. Uh, And that ended up being a bit of a debacle. But I remember toward the end of that project, really struggling with things. One of the big issues was this waterline. 15 feet in the ground. It was a thousand feet long, this big old water main. 
there is a pinhole leak, just a tiny little drip somewhere in that line. We can measure it because we can test the pressure, but we have no idea where it is. So I'm out there with the contractor and my nicer professional clothes in the mud, 15 feet in the ground, digging and looking for this leak as we're going along. And it was, it was horrible. It was really some really rough days and rough nights. And, but I remember going through all of that at the end of that project, the, uh, the city brought out half a dozen inspectors. They're out there for half a day and they're walking, looking literally every nook and cranny in that building. And at the end of the inspection, the head building official pulled me in the underground parking garage and pulled me aside and said, Mike, I know we were really tough on you. It's partly because of what was going on. But honestly, now that we're done, this is the nicest project that we've opened in this city. And you should wow. be proud. I was like, wow. Finally, right? We get a little bit <laughs> wow, of wow, validation. Validation, <laughs> finally. But it 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 taught me to be really comfortable in being mad and having others not think you're very good and realizing that you just have to get through that. You know, Mike, I think that takes a lot of confidence in oneself. It really mm. does. You have to have a sense of worthiness. And I think that's hard for so many people because I was just talking to another young man and he admitted, he said, when I get a lot of accolades for people, you're doing a great job, you're great in job, I feel good inside. He's a keynote speaker. Yeah. When it doesn't go well, I don't really feel that great about myself. And he goes, I don't want to be tied to that. So he did say, I was talking, I told him you were coming on. He's, he said, I want to know a secret sauce. How does Mike not let those people get inside his head? Because I really, he said, it's a doozy for me. That's what he said. <laughs> yeah. Um, a few different things. I think. I think the number one technique that I learned, this is actually from Stephen Covey. Uh, I think it was in his book, Eight Habits, Eighth Habit. But he talked about the, how there's a space between stimulus and response. So stimulus being negative feedback you're getting from people or um, things that are just going on in your life. But it's in that space where you have the freedom and power to choose. And there's an ability of self-talk. It's are you letting yourself dwell and think about and be like, uh, everyone hates me. Am I struggling? And if you start down that path, you're like wiring your brain to a degree to be in that world, right? And I think the key is in that moment is to recognize that happens, kind of let that thought be there and then let that thought pass and then choose not to think about that thing. Move on to more positive things in your life. You don't yeah. feel good immediately, but making that choice eventually evolves you feeling better. And here's the power of all of that is you do that more, it becomes like a hardwire in your brain that gets more and more comfortable. So those initial negative stimuli don't impact you as much. They still do. It still hurts. Um, and another technique that I've kind of learned, we, uh, we've started a, um, my daughter wanted to start a YouTube channel. She got really passionate about it. So we started it and, uh, um, Last week we were on the radio, we were on TV for it. it was, it's really kind of grown quite substantially. But when we first started, it was we were terrible, right? And you get negative comments and negative feedback and stuff. And so another thing I've kind of done over time is just make a game out of it. See, there's all these haters, there's all these trolls out there. And uh, I've kind of had fun by just killing them with kindness because they're not half expecting it. 
<laughs> and like, oh, dude, Mike, you're kind of goofy or you're, they're meaner than that. But like, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're an idiot or you're not thinking about this right or what have you. And I'm like, oh, actually, that's a good perspective. Thank you for pointing that. I hadn't thought about that perspective. <laughs> uh, and if you do that, it totally catches them off guard. It makes it a little bit more fun. And then it, it becomes kind of a game for me. <laughs> 101 how to handle a bully that's the truth right oh i never thought of that i, I am a doofus but thanks for pointing <laughs> <laughs> he just took the wind out of their sail right I mean, now yeah. we're going with that what a great lesson for your daughter too okay yeah. <laughs> oh, mike these these are such valuable words of wisdom like i'm gonna run out of pages okay I love this. This is near and dear to my heart. And I 100% agree with you. It's been my philosophy. Hire the best people. Mm -hmm. Now I want to talk about that because I did not know this statistic. Where were you 30 years ago? The best people outperform the average by two to 10 times. So they are less expensive. Come on. Absolutely. It, this is not something I invented. I, I've learned this from much stronger leaders. Actually, this came from uh, uh, the Netflix founder. But um, I read really? his book. It's sort of the right. What was that? It's really the Netflix founder. That's where you got this information. Yeah. Reed Hastings. I, I didn't know him personally. I know lots of cool people. I don't know him personally. <laughs> I happen to read his book. Uh, I'm but, get uh, but I happened to read his book at the right time in our company's growth. And we were struggling substantially because frankly, looking back, we just weren't hiring the right people. And he talks about this notion of hiring the very, very best. And it's a game changer. And when we talk about the best, I really do mean the best. We today, we will fly people in from other states to come work during the week and we fly them home on the weekend. One no, of our staff not. members in 2007, Steve Jobs announces the iPhone. Steve Jobs walks off stage and our employee walks on that same stage following Steve Jobs. In fact, 15% of our staff are international because those are the, some of the best people in the world at their niche or whatever they're doing. And the immediate response I get from people is, dude, that is expensive. That will never work for me. And Honestly, it is expensive because part of doing that is you've got to pay them top of market to get the best people. But what most people fail to realize is that the best perform two to five to 10 times as much as the average. And I learned that from Reed Hastings' book. And now I have seen that in real life for myself. And so instead of looking at it as a cost per person, Look at it as a cost per what they produce. And when you look at it from that perspective, those people are actually the least expensive. So the business leaders who feel they can't afford to hire the best, my response is you can't afford not to. Mike, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And I'm definitely, I don't know anything about that man, but I'm going to get his book. You know? <laughs> no <laughs> rules, have... rules. One of the best books I've ever read. I'm going to get that book. Okay. So let's back up a second. You fly people in and out because they're the best. Yeah. So no virtual or some virtual, but sometimes you need them in person. I need to know the philosophy here. Yeah. So it varies uh, depending on the position. So one of our philosophy, let me back up one step. 
The number one most important thing we do once we find the right people is build the right culture. And there's so much that goes into that. One little small component is a, providing a tremendous amount of freedom and flexibility. People can choose how, when, where they work. It's totally okay. Uh, so for most of our staff, they work remote. Uh, and so if you actually look around our offices, it's usually only two or three of us here on any given day, uh, despite having a lot of desks because people are working remotely. Uh, there are certain positions that you physically have to be present. For example, a lot of our team is construction workers, but even within the construction, we want to provide as much freedom and flexibility there. So their individual teams, each team gets to pick the hours they work. So we got some teams that work a standard eight to four thirty or what have you throughout the week. We have other teams that come in really early and leave at like noon. We have other teams that work four, uh, five day week, work week or four days, ten hour days, uh, because it works best for them in their lives. We try to push that power down. In the case that we fly people in, uh, so we've got, for example, precast concrete. This is a very kind of niche kind of uh, skill set. There's only a few people in the world that are sort of best at what they do. The guy who runs it lives in Florida. We fly him up every week. He's got to be present because of the kind of work he's doing. Uh, but that's why he's here weekly. But we'll have a lot of, we have, um, we probably have the top engineer in the world when it comes to the kind of work we do. And he lives out, uh, out East and he'll fly in when he wants to come see, needs to see something and flies yeah. back, but it's, it's up to him what he wants to see. And when he comes out here. Your people must love you. I mean, come on. And you're proving that you can be successful and care about people and their needs mm -hmm. and their lifestyle. And it's not just purely altruistic. You're making money. Yeah, I would say you can't change an industry unless you care about the people involved. And the reason I talk about this with their staff, if the company is doing all they possibly can to support the team, and the team is doing all they can to support support the business, that's where the magic happens. And it takes both to make that a reality. And so we put a lot of time energy into supporting people. And see, here, here's what some managers fail to understand too. If you're just expecting somebody to do the work, it's like, just, I don't care what's going on in your life. I know things are tough. I just don't care. I know you're frustrated. Just come into work, do the job, get home. In, in the world of construction, that's very, very normal. You have got their hands, right? They're coming there. They're swinging the hammer. You don't have their heart. And here's the thing. You can't change. You can't invent new things. You can't discover new ways to do things unless you have their full heart behind what they're doing. Because it's only in that level of creative thinking and passion and drive that new innovation happens. And I see this all the time within our team. We, uh, I was talking to our PR guy yesterday. And uh, uh, we're working on like raising capital and a number of things within the business. He's in PR. He has no, like, that's not his job to do any of this other kinds of stuff. And he got like four or five investors lined up for one of this investment avenue that we have to do. I didn't ask him to do that. Why did he do that? Because he's so passionate about this company, wants to see this company succeed. And so on, on night, one night, he worked through some of his connections and relationships and got us connected with some investors. I don't get that if I'm not totally, fully, and wholeheartedly supporting my team. Mm. So when people say to you, I can't find great employees, which you hear all the time, mm -hmm. 
They don't stay with me. They're not loyal. I mean, how do you answer them? Yeah, you can't find great employees if if I'm being very kind of curt about it because you're not really trying. Uh, we weren't really trying originally either. What I mean by that is you can post something on Indeed and you're posting and praying, right? Uh, that's not successful for finding great people. The best people are not looking for jobs. So why are you just posting a job posting on Indeed and thinking the best people are going to come knocking on the door? They're not. And so what we had a hard look at ourselves in the mirror and realized in order to get the caliber of people that we wanted, we needed to change the paradigm. And uh, we were about a hundred person company at this point, And we went and hired 14 recruiters, 14 for a hundred person company. And wow. yeah, I know it was a huge investment. It was a little scary, but we built up such a strong recruiting arm that started to build relationships with people in the industry and connecting with the people that don't aren't looking for jobs so that as jobs opened up, that we could put people in those right kind of seats. And even that, um, we have got a really stringent hiring infrastructure. In fact, I think it's like a half a percent of people that want to work here. We actually get accepted to give some comparison. Harvard is like 4%. Uh, and then, uh, even when people do come in, a lot of the people, not all the positions, but a lot of the positions will actually do a trial period. We'll be very upfront and say, we think you're the right person, but we don't know for sure until if we get some time working together. So they come in for a trial period. It's usually about two weeks at the end of the trial period, the people that they're working with, their coworkers on their team, they make the decision if that person is at the caliber of person that they want to work with or not. It's not me. It's not HR. It's not the leadership. It's your coworkers. Because at the end of the day, like that's what keeps people. People don't leave because of uh, people join a company because of the reputation or maybe the pay or the benefits. That's not the reason people leave. People leave because of their interaction with their coworkers and their manager. So it's really important that the people that are working with are awesome at that same kind of level. And so, yeah, we do a lot in that hiring process. Mike, do you teach courses in this? <laughs> Maybe I should. That'd be fun. <laughs> I'm serious. I talk to other business leaders, not courses, but workshops, speaking engagements on your model and how it's successful. It's so freaking needed. It's so, yeah. it really is. Oh, all right. I better get into a few of the real estate questions or <laughs> My peeps are going to kick my butt. So the number one thing that real estate agents get wrong, my friend said, please, oh, please make sure you ask that question. Interesting. The number one thing real estate agents get wrong. I think sometimes, so I I, I meet a lot of real estate agents. We're, we're a little bit more on the developer side, but I, I interact a lot with real estate agents and they obviously reach out to me a lot of times. I think one thing that I see sometimes agents get wrong is they're really focused on the dollars and sometimes not as deeply on the relationship. And I think a lot of I think a lot of agents understand that principle, but really, really getting strong relationships, I think, is the key to that that business mm -hmm. to be successful. Yeah. And I certainly agree. for us, like um, I mean, we get pitched by real estate agents all the time. Feels like there's so many of them out there. Um, but it's the ones that leave that emotional impact, the ones that feel like they're supportive. Well, I'll give you a sense of this. I, I get people who will engage on my social media and just comment and stuff like that. And then they'll start a little bit of a dialogue. 
on LinkedIn. And they're not looking to get anything. They're looking to give first. And so they're, hey, can I make a connection here? Oh, this might be interesting to you. And they're legitimate things that are interesting, not like trying to get me to waste time. And those people spend months working to build up a relationship. Well, guess what? Months into this, if we need help with something, guess who I first think to call? It's the guy who actually spent time to build that relationship and that connection with me over time that that wins that business. Yeah, it's true. Building up over time. I agree. All right. Higher quality, lower cost. Yeah. How do you do it? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So if you look at a lot of other industries like manufacturing, over the last 60 years, they've improved labor productivity by 760%. Agriculture has improved it by 1,500%. I mean, just look at your iPhone, for example. The fact that we have a supercomputer in our pocket is amazing at the price point that it's at. So higher quality, lower cost is achievable. If you look at housing and construction in that same time period, they have done essentially nothing. It's improved just by 10%. It's terrible. In fact, if you look at it from a cost perspective, in the 1960s, you could buy a median home, median priced home for about two times your salary. Today, it's about seven times your salary. And that's a reflection of how inefficient this market has been. It has not changed the way we have done things. So really simplistically, we're taking the lessons learned from these other industries and applying it to construction. For example, Toyota has a, um, they invented a lot of the uh, mass improvements to manufacturing through the processes, things called lean. We just reached out to them and say, hey, Toyota, do you want to connect with us and work with us and see if we can apply those same lessons into the world of construction? They're really excited to. And so now we have a partnership with them. Um, wow. But one of the first things that we did was we started to bring all the work under, under one company. In the world of construction, it's very disparate companies. You've got a different electrician, different plumber, different yep. HVAC company. And that it's crazy, right? Manufacturing looks at us and says, you're insane. Bringing all these people together, dozens of different companies to build a project, one project, and then they all leave. <laughs> okay. So we brought it under one roof. Now the magic here is once it's all under one roof, we can do some pretty simple but clever things. For example, the assembly line. Not that innovative from a manufacturing standpoint, but has revolutionized what they've done. How in the world could you possibly do that with construction? You can't take a building and drive it down a line. Well, no, but what you can do is you can take the person and move them through the building. So right now, every team shifts by one unit every five or six hours through the building. And so if you look at the end of our building, every five or six hours, there's a brand new apartment unit that's completed. And at the beginning of the line, they haven't even dug the hole yet. That one technique takes a project that might be 15 months and drives it down to nine. And so there are literally hundreds of techniques like that that we apply. Actually, it's more like thousands of techniques that help in little ways, but they all little ways that improve the overall cost while maintaining a great quality. I want to see that in action. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. It's fun to see. Yeah. You know, same unit. Here they are. You know, sometimes things we, well, a lot of times I say we make a big hairy deal out of things. We overcomplicate things. 
And the way you broke it down, it's just like, well, that makes sense, but we don't do it. You know, it seems mm-hmm. so simple. We don't see it and we don't do it. All right, Mike. A lot of my friends are concerned about their kids coming out of college, being able to afford the rent. They used to yeah. just take it for granted. You go to school, you make a decent salary, you're going to be able to afford. And now they're really freaking out. And you talk about, you know, making rent affordable. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a crisis in America, frankly. And what's interesting is there's some countries that have actually done steps to really solve it, like Japan, which is kind of interesting, but that's what we want to solve. And when people think about affordable housing, they often think of government financing into a project that then lowers the rent. That's not what we're talking about here, because the reality is this is such a big problem that you can't move enough money from one sector of the economy into housing just to fix it. It's just too big. The yeah. only way to solve it is to by driving down the cost of those inputs. So we talked about driving down the cost. Right now we're achieving typically, not always, but 20 to 30% reduction in cost. We believe we can achieve a 50% reduction in cost over time. But imagine what that means. And that yeah. someday your rent or your mortgage payment could be half. Now here's the interesting challenge that people come back at me usually. And they say, Mike, that sounds great, but I go into your website and your rents are the same as everyone else. What the heck? Well, the honest answer is that we could lower rents today and that would solve housing affordability for a few thousand people. That's great. That's admirable. That's awesome. But that's not everyone nationwide. So what we're doing is we're taking those profits and we're putting it into building the system that builds housing. Think factories, because we have factory infrastructure. Think think like an apartment building factory, but spread out across the country. Building that infrastructure is really expensive and time-consuming. Elon Musk talks about how it's hard to produce a car, but it's 10 to 100 to 1,000 times harder to produce a system that builds that car. So we're building up that system with those profits. We're hoping over the next decade or so to scale up the 60,000 units being produced every single year. At that point, in certain markets, we're now supplying enough new housing to the market that given that supply, abundance of supply, reduces prices. But here's where the magic comes in. It's not just reducing prices for our own residents. It's reducing pricing for everyone in that market and hopefully, eventually, nationwide. I was just going to ask you, what do you want to do in the next five or 10 years? But it seems like you have a very lofty goal here. Yeah. Yeah, I tell our team, we want to shoot for the moon. Even if we miss it, we'll be among the stars. But we want to shoot for a really challenging goal. So how do you balance, you know, because the first thing out with, which is unusual, which I loved, your bio was, I'm a father. You know, I'm a husband and it's very challenging for people that are really passionate about what they do to step away. Are you able to do that? Go, okay, I'm done. I'm with my family now. And can you go on vacation and not work? Because that is really tough for most of the people that are watching and listening. It is really challenging. Um, I think one of the things we talked about this earlier is that mindset and that you choose your actions and that drives how you feel. So one thing for me is uh, 99% of the time, I am home at the same time every night. 
so that I can be there with my wife and my kids for dinner and I can put them to bed and I could have a really tough day at work. But my first response when I open the door is, hey, Claire Bear, right? I bring the energy and support where they feel loved and cared for in that moment. Um, and I, I think that's important, right? And again, I'm choosing, I could feel bad inside, but I'm choosing my reaction. And what's pretty magical, when you bring the energy and then the, your daughters bring the same energy back, it doesn't take long. And a bad day at work starts kind of disappearing. Oh. And you start feeling good about life again. And so that's a, a real value in my life too. So I think for me, there's there's tangible points every single day that I know I'm spending with my family and kids because the reality is there's a lot of time I spend within the work. So I, I, I have always had that set aside. I, kind of a surprising thing that's happened is that if I can find ways to marry the two where I'm getting, I'm living both out fully, that's always exciting to me. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, the YouTube channel, because my daughter wanted to start that, I I didn't think much of it at the time, but that's turning to have a positive impact in the business too. So it becomes a fun kind of engagement thing that my daughter and I are doing. Like I mentioned, we got on on the news last week, we're on live radio, we're on this newspaper. That's what that's turning out to be. But it's a really fun activity that my daughter just loves. She loves like spending all the time together and creating these videos. And now it's also having a positive impact on the business because as we're raising money from investors, they get to know us on a more personal level because of the YouTube channel. So it was sort of serendipitous. I didn't expect that, but it's becoming sort of a neat uh, way to marry the two worlds. How old's your daughter? And is it Claire? Which one is doing it with you? Yeah, well, both of my daughters, but Claire is more the instigator. She's five years old and my younger one is three. Wait, so she's the, five and she's like, we need to do this, dad? Oh my. Yeah, she's pretty driven. Uh, the video we did last week that we got on the news for was we filled a dump truck full of candy and then drove around the neighborhood uh, giving out, because like, her whole thing was uh, she saw the ice cream truck come by and she's like, dad, why isn't there, why isn't there candy trucks? Like, I don't know. Why not? Let's create it. And then we ended up donating it to the food shelf. It's a, it, the video isn't out yet, but it's, it's really, I, I oh saw my it God, this I morning. Wait. It's really cool. It's what a dump truck filled with candy. What did you fill with candy? Yeah, so we took one of our dump trucks from the construction site, full size giant dump truck. Uh, we didn't. Here's a little secret. We didn't actually fill the whole thing with the candy. It would have been a hundred thousand dollars, but there was a thousand pounds of candy, and we we put it all on the top, so it looks like it's full of candy. Oh and a thousand pounds of candy. We spent forty five minutes throwing candy off of that truck as fast as we could. And you had no dent. <laughs> oh, I love, oh God, you're going to have so much fun. I can't wait to see what you guys come up with. That, yeah. is, that is a who. Yeah. And I love the fact that you said you did it because your daughter wanted to do it. You had no idea it was going to possibly impact the business. Yeah. It's the best. Like I saved this for last because I think this is a really Im- important point. Feedback is a gift. Yeah. I want to dive into that because I had one employee tell me, you know, Sandy, whatever way you want to put it, I've never ever could handle even the most sandwich sugar coated feedback unless it was mm-hmm. like, you did great. You did great. So I want to hear what Mike has to say. You know, um, this is probably one of those things that it changed me and my ability to lead more than anything else. 
because I didn't start off with all this knowledge. Like everything I'm talking to you, I, I didn't create it, right? I learned and I got feedback from others along the way. And so I've really tried to take the approach of, I want to learn and grow as much as I can and improve. So I'm always asking to get feedback. We do uh, a few things within the business. And one interesting one is 360 degree feedback. Every single team once a year will do an offsite meeting. There's a lot that goes on that meeting, but there's two or three hours that are spent where that team goes around one at a time. It's eye to eye, person to person. And you share with them what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. And most people, this is a bit terrifying, right? <laughs> you start off in this like point of fear and ignorance because you don't know what you don't know. You're afraid of what's coming. It sounds, it sounds awful, frankly, to most people. And then what happens during the meeting is there's this point of pain and vulnerability. It is hard hearing that feedback. And it's hard to be open and be like, no, you're, you're right. I, I do act like that. I appreciate you pointing that out. The magic happens after that. And what you realize in the moment is that everybody already knew your shortcomings, right? They didn't have to tell you. They already knew it. They're already thinking it. This is the first time you're realizing it. But despite that, they still accept you for who you are. And that's where these teams go from just being a collection of people to being like a deep-seated, truly connected, like Navy SEALs level team that's got that bond. And um, I tell our teams all the time, that that moment is probably the single biggest gift that you'll ever receive in this company. And I say people are afraid of giving and receiving feedback, but what you're doing by not giving someone feedback that they that you know they would benefit from is you're robbing them the opportunity to grow. And I turn that and I say, dude, if you're not giving me feedback that I need to hear, you're robbing me the opportunity to grow. Don't rob me of that opportunity. Give me that feedback. And people literally do all the time. Um, but because of that, I can become a better leader and supporter of them. And so it's been a tremendous value to my life. I just want you to know, Mike, so many leaders, not even in your profession, are going to want to come and hang out with you and learn your system. I'm surprised you don't have people following you around right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we have a lot of followers on LinkedIn and stuff, but yeah, I mean, we should. I mean, seriously, it, it's mind-blowing. And I, like I told you at the beginning, I've never had anybody in this arena in over 15 years but no one has broken it down so concisely as you have not just for the real estate business but for any business mm. yeah i appreciate that yeah for, and it's, for and, it's not, and, yeah it's just mind-blowing and i did i've owned health clubs my entire life and i just sold them all in 2019 and a lot of what you're saying, I was already doing it innately, but it really would have been nice to have someone to brainstorm with you. Like, like yeah. this doesn't make sense. That, I don't know, that doesn't sit right with me. And and I used to always get slammed for like, you overpaid for the industry, but people in the health club industry, they usually leave constantly. People didn't leave me, you know? But it's there's awesome. Also, yeah, but even though I do a lot now, I'm getting antsy to build another 
business. Like, I don't know what it is because I miss managing and working with people like a lot mm. of people. So now I'm like, oh, I gotta go with, go see Mike and, and get some of these facts down before I go into my next venture, but whatever. Oh, it is. I love it. And that's the reality too, right? Like none of this is, is me. It was all standing on the shoulders of giants, just learning from people that have been there and have failed and can give me that insight so that I can be a better leader as a result. I agree. I, I didn't take any, I was a dance major, got my master's in exercise phys, but I had the who's who I trained and they were my mentors and I would just suck up everything they told me. Yeah. And the best education, because I was sitting and listen to it. Not that I would do everything, but there were so many amazing people that I surrounded myself, you know, that were mm. awesome. What I felt amazing business leaders. And that's I, awesome. I just love every single one of them. I'm so grateful for them. All right. So here's the deal. It's sad. We have to go. It's really sad because I could talk to you forever. It really has mm. been a pleasure. Thank you yeah. so much for sharing all your knowledge. But before we go, is there anything that we didn't get in that you want to share with my peeps? Yeah. Uh, so we have a couple of fun things. The first is our podcast called Zero to Unicorn. It's about the journey of small business growing to billion dollar enterprise. Yeah. And season one was about our journey. And you get to see a little bit of that season two that we're recording right now. It is really cool. Uh, the first episode of season two is going to be from Michael Uslan, who is the originator and executive producer of Batman. Uh, he did the Lego movies, uh, the national treasure, like, major, major things. And his stories are incredible. And the one thing I really took away from him was it took him 10 years, 10 years of trying to convince people before he was able to make Batman a reality. And so that's an awesome podcast. There's also, there's many, really other great guests that are lined up after him as well. And then the last one is we have an investment platform. If anyone's interested in getting behind us, and investing with us and earning a great rate of return, uh, you can visit our website, norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com. And the neat thing here is we've structured this in a way that allows anyone in America to invest. Most times, most real estate investments are off limits. They're only to accredited investors. But we took the much longer, painful, and expensive approach to get full SEC approval to allow anyone to invest. Yay! <laughs> That's exciting. Oh, Mike, let's keep it real, people. Come on, you're going to want to share it, like it, rate it. We truly would appreciate it. And you know what I'm going to say. Until next time, toodles. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And remember, Keep spreading the positive.